thank you, Heavenly Father, for this glorious opportunity that we have to join in the worship of the Lamb that was slain and is now exalted and reigning at the right hand of the Father. We thank you, Lord, that as we have contemplated the work of redemption that made this morning possible to unite us in Christ, to wash away our sins and to fill us with the joy of our salvation, that we are freshly reminded of the ever-present work of Jesus Christ, our intercessor, going before us and pleading on our behalf by the price of His own blood, the purchasing power of our salvation for our union with the Godhead. We thank You, Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith, and this is a mighty work and gift of God unto us. Lord, I thank You this morning as we look more closely at Your Scriptures at the depth of the hole and the wickedness that the human heart is prone to indulge, that you have saved us beyond all measure, God. You have done what was impossible. You have breathed life into that which was dead. You have quickened, Lord, unto eternal life, that which was lost and hell-bent. We thank you, Lord, for your miraculous power. I pray as we set our minds and hearts' attention on the miraculous work of Jesus Christ, that is unfolded for us in Holy Scripture, that you would return us, Lord, to the joy of our salvation, if we've grown weary and well-doing at all, that you would equip us for the proclamation of these truths through faithfulness unto your holy word and through diligence, Father, to walk in a manner worthy of our call. We thank you for this morning that your blood is purchased for us. May we steward it well by the power of the Holy Spirit, delivering these words and quickening our ears to understand, to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great privilege it is to open the Scriptures together this morning. I'd encourage you to turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 will be our main text this morning, verses 23 through 33. We'll cover ten Scriptures in the woes passage as judgment is being proclaimed on the Pharisees and all who shared their uh, heart and worldview, who are deserving of the, this kind of strong language. We've mentioned in previous messages that when we hear the word woe, we ought to think of a siren, a proclamation, a judgment, uh, the awareness of certain doom unless a change in our state occurs. And so the alarm of judgment comes through the pages as we read. We've covered three of these woes so far as we have them in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13. And we'll cover four this morning, Lord willing, beginning in verse 23. The title of this morning's message is Lessons in Lawfulness. Lessons in Lawfulness. The Pharisees themselves are condemned for their lawlessness in verse 28. And so by negative example, there is much to learn in these pages in these words about what it means to walk uprightly before the Lord and what lawfulness looks like. So with that introduction, if you would stand with me this morning with your scriptures open to Matthew 23, 23, let us read these words together. Here we have the infallible word of Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape? being sentenced to hell. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Jesus' message to the Pharisees in this section is laced with surprising and even shocking ironies. The class of individuals he is speaking to are among the most learned of the men, the religious leaders of their day, in one sense. Yet in another, they proved to be the most ignorant. That is, they knew aspects and uh, treasury elements of the law, details and nuances, but they had missed the point. And I think we'll discover that in, in the process of our understanding of this passage this morning. These, the men that these instructions were addressed to were devout in many things. Yet in others, they were the most obstinate, and especially in respect to the truth and the thrust of Christ's teaching, which was, as he has unfolded in his gospel, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. How hypocritical must you be to claim to be an expert in the law and then not see, be blind to its fulfillment, speaking and unfolding these truths before you in your day. The most concerned, that is, the Pharisees and the scribes, as they're identified in this passage, they were the most concerned with the minutiae, the finer points, the details, the nuances of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law. Yet Christ declares them to be lawless. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And in a word in verse 28, he describes them, actually, too, as hypocritical and full of lawlessness. Again, we go on, the impressive displays of outward piety proved to be the most despicable evidence of the depravity because what shows on the outside is just a thinly veiled mask of hypocrisy covering the sin within. Thus, when Christ removes with his words and with his proclamation of truth and authority that mask of hypocrisy, that facade that they present to others, we see behind this thin veneer And underneath, we see the complex and the complicated, the deceptive religious scam that was the Pharisees' understanding of the Scriptures. This great class of experts and doctors of theological precision, according to their system and understanding, in fact, prove in the final analysis, in Jesus' words, to be the blind leading the blind. Turn with me to John chapter 9. Jesus describes these who were thought to be among the most impressive students of the law to be, in fact, oblivious to its intent. In this miracle recorded in John chapter 9, Jesus uses this occasion as an object lesson to illustrate the problem of the Pharisees and all who shared their persuasion and understanding. John 9.35 says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. This is referring to a man who was blind whom he had healed previously. And having found him, he, that is Jesus, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He, the man, answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He, the man, said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you see, we see your guilt remains. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. There are many lessons that are encoded in this miracle in Jesus' explanation. First of all, we see the man who merely submits and believes in the healing power of Christ 
and is waiting for his eyes to be opened. His heart has been prepared to receive the seed of the word of God. And when Christ himself reveals himself to him as the son of man, he rejoices. And what is his first impulse? It's to worship. It's to give glory to the one who has been revealed to him in his miraculous power. And now in the proclamation of his own word as his savior, as his healer, as the son of man, as the one prophesied of old, the anointed one, the Messiah. Yet there are others who knew more, presumably, by degrees, by multiples of the Old Testament law and the finer points of what the Messiah would do and what the prophecies were and all the complicated nuances of ceremonial impeccability and perfection in liturgical order and temple and tabernacle worship. But to these who had far less of an excuse, when Christ is revealing the law fulfilled before them, they remain blind. And though they see enough to condemn them, their spiritual eyes are not opened. What kind of eyes? Eyes of humility, eyes of worship, eyes of surrender, eyes to see their own sin. Because they remain blind by self-justification and self-righteousness, though their eyes are opened in one sense, it only is there to accuse them. They have indeed no excuse and so we have in this example a more of Jesus' teaching that describes the heart of one who remains willfully deceived and blind to what is plainly available to him in the word of Christ. If his heart was just soft enough to receive the truth and the seed of the word. Let us pray this morning, brothers and sisters, that God through his mighty word opens our eyes to the pharisaical tendencies that yet plague the heart of man. It would be wrong indeed to say, as I've mentioned in the past, that Pharisee, the problem of the Pharisee is unique to that religious class of people who first heard these words. No. The Word of God records these chilling indictments in Matthew 23 because we need to hear them. We need to be humbled and jarred by the words of woe, woe, repeated indeed seven times, it needs to feel as if there is an alarm, something of danger, pitfalls we need to be aware of lest we fall into them. Because the human heart, every bit as much today as it was then, is plagued by the impulse of self-justification. We are so easily motivated by a deluded quest to defend ourselves, not to surrender to the blood of Christ alone, not to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, but to somehow plead another ground for hope, for salvation for self-esteem. And so we have this lesson in lawfulness today that we need to hear as the Pharisees did. Let me give you a heading this morning. Let us look to understand lawfulness by three categories this morning drawn from our passage today in Matthew 23, 23 through 33. Understanding lawfulness by three categories. First, the intent or intent of the law. Secondly, internal, the aspects of the law that are most important, understand, understanding them on the inside, the internal essence of uh, grasping truth. And thirdly, imminent, which means within the limits of our experience, experience and knowledge. The law, the word of God is something that is, it takes root and foothold and places and, and is a standard on, uh, upon us and a real thing that is imminent, it is present, it is part of our daily life is not something relegated to the distant past. It is not something irrelevant to our condition. So those are the three categories this morning. So let us first of all consider intent. What was Jesus meaning to convey in these words that called out the Pharisees for their sin and, um, and by contrast uh, meant, uh, was meant to teach us something about the law? What was the intent of the law? What was its main idea? What was the heart and substance of righteousness? What is uh, the, the main thrust and the uh, overarching rule of faith and practice that the law represented that we were meant to understand and the Pharisees missed? Was the intent of the law uh, its cer ceremonial perfection as the Pharisees sought to achieve? Was it uh, symbolic uh, issues that must be followed to the absolute T and that was the main point? Was it liturgical precision so that the T's being crossed and the I's being dotted and every jot and tittle of 
garments and self-presentation, things that you wore and the trappings of worship as we see them in the temple and tabernacle order of old? Was that the main intent or was it something else? First of all, we see that the Pharisees were missing the point. When Jesus Christ declares again in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, namely justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It is clear that the Pharisees were missing the point, the intent of the law. They were not understanding, therefore, what true lawfulness was. And it was demonstrated their error and their emphases, which was off base and led them into deception, was evident in what they elevated and what they, they prioritized and consequently what they diminished and minimized. And one thing that they really stressed was that you must pay your tithe right down to your mint, your dill, and your cumin. These were three herbs that you would use in very small quantities. Tithing was identified as extremely important right down to the minute produce and even the spices that you would use by this ruling class. This, the reason this was useful for the Pharisee was because it was, it, was a, it was a one way that you could set yourself apart. I have an extraordinary level of piety. After all, I don't just tithe with my corn, my wine, and my oil, but I tithe right down to what is in my mortar and pestle. Remember the ancient practice? You have that little bowl and that kind of uh, stick or what have you, and you mash together the spices in small quantities, and you use those you know, to enhance the flavor of food or as a medicine, a tincture, that kind of thing. Well, right down to what filled that little mortar and pestle needed to be tithed and carefully measured out. The super-righteous could judge themselves as holy by saying, by boasting, that they tithe, not just of the big items, the big produce items and, and comestibles like corn, wine, and oil, but right down to the mint and to the dill and to the cumin. They were desperate to find ways to demonstrate that they were extraordinarily holy. And they demonstrated this by precise uh, adherence to the law in even these minute details. In Deuteronomy 14, 23, we get some of the background uh, in the law that laid out some of these principles that weren't followed for their intent, but were exploited by the Pharisees for different purposes. In Deuteronomy 14.22, we have this injunction, this command. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of all your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always." So here we see a sampling of what was to be tithed upon. And we can see that it was not wrong. In fact, it would have been wrong to avoid and to disobey the tithe. This was indeed a commandment by the Lord. But it would be missed entirely in its instruction, in its teaching or didactic value, if you simply followed the rote procedure but missed the heart behind it. Leviticus is another uh, passage, or in Leviticus, we have another passage that describes the tithe. And this might have been one that the Pharisees would use to proof text, to lay heavy burdens right down to, again, what was in the mortar and pestle of the commoner. It must be tithed or else, and you should follow our holy example in doing so. Every tithe of the land, Leviticus 27.30 says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it, and so on. And so we see details on the tithing as it was prescribed. So right down to these minute details that we see in the law, these were the nooks and crannies of the Old Testament that were exploited for self-righteous purposes. But in the end, it's important to see what is happening here. Jesus said, you have paid so careful attention 
to the items themselves that you have missed the point. The intent of the law was not that I need, uh, speaking uh, from the perspective of God himself, I need right down to the absolute tenth of absolute everything in your cupboard from the mint, the dill, and the cumin, and everything else or else. But instead, the intent was justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let us see what the main point is in Jesus' instructions. What is the law meant to convey? Not a very careful standard to set yourself apart from others, but instead a teacher to lead you to Christ. To teach you that you need to be about the business of understanding, holding yourself accountable to, and living in such a way as to demonstrate justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This leads me to point uh, number two under intent. Instead of these three, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, being the preeminent standards that the Pharisees employed to judge themselves by, they had misleading standards instead. Not only were they missing the point, they were using misleading standards. Notice in the next verse, as we continue to read, verse 24, Jesus condemns them, saying, You blind guides, straining out a gnat, and swallowing a camel. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is an idiom, it's a figure of speech to demonstrate priorities again that were askew. The standards or the measure of righteousness that the Pharisees were using, they were being, expending all this energy as it were to be careful not to swallow the smallest unclean creature. If you were to turn to Leviticus 11, 20 through 23, you can see the taxonomical designation of unclean animals, namely insects. So what kind of insects were you forbidden to consume under the law? So uh, it had something to do with how their legs were jointed and so on. And so under the old covenant, you, it was forbidden for you to consume insects in this category. Now the smallest of the unclean category, we are told, was a gnat. The smallest of the unclean animals was that little creature, whereas the largest listed of the unclean animals, and roughly speaking in the Old Covenant, was the camel. So you can see how this then becomes a picture. You're so careful to uh, strain out the gnat representing the details that you're missing the big picture. Not only that, you're using misleading standards. Amos chapter 6, verse 6, the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament employed during the time of Jesus' ministry and familiar to the people. In Amos, it refers to strained wine, reminding us that it was a common practice of the day that even the, whatever you would drink, in case you had accidentally been in violation of Leviticus 11, had to strain out the wine and things if you were to follow the Pharisees' strict rules. This practice was employed so as to be impeccable as to the ceremonial code and laws of cleanliness and so on, and that which was unclean and that which was clean. As we consider this context, we're reminded of the book of Mark, where Jesus himself shows the intent of the law that especially related to these types of items, they indeed were symbolic. After all, he declared all foods clean. So the point wasn't don't eat a gnat as much as it was what God has set you apart for is his will and purposes. The Pharisees were honing in on a detail that became a special interest to them and a campaign for them. And it was very easily, very easy under these conditions to have the big picture distorted. I wonder if we are prone to do the same thing. Have you ever heard somebody get all in a tizzy about some really minute detail about the Christian life. And meanwhile, we miss a whole category of holiness over here or over there. Have you been tempted to do that same thing? I don't know, I'll just pick something. We really should use unleavened bread in communion. Or I heard one pastor say, we argue endlessly about how much water to use in a baptism. Meanwhile, we send our kids to be educated by this world system that inculcates them systematically into secular humanism for X amount of hours of their entire life. Or somebody might go and be so careful you know, to follow 
uh, the commandment related to some detail and they might have a strong conviction about some particular point and meanwhile there's an entertainment room in their house and the wall is literally papered with the spines of DVDs and each one almost is a complete desecration of the law of God and completely irreverently takes the things that God has called holy and divine uh, and set apart for his purposes and should only be uh, you know, uh, appreciated within covenant fences. And there they are, freely displayed on the screens of our television sets. And what have we done? We've strained out a gnat and we've swallowed a camel. Sometimes in the interest of self-righteousness, we get real particular about one aspect, but we don't take the time to step back and say, what is my life like? before Jesus Christ. What about those scriptures? Whatsoever things are holy, just, virtuous, of good report, if there's any virtue or praise, think on these things. What about the passages in Galatians? There was a church that was want to get hung up in legalism, right? What about those passages in Galatians, which remind them that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, and faith, and we're very tempted to get impatient with somebody that doesn't share the exact same particular conviction. These are just examples of where we might be guilty of having misleading standards and miss the forest for the trees, as it were. Let us be careful to look at passages of Scripture like this and let the magnifying glass of God's Word shine a light on our lives to see if we are missing the intent of God's Word and lawfulness. Under this category intent, finally, we have the main idea. This main idea is the justice and mercy and faithfulness that God's law meant to convey. These were the underlying principles. Jesus himself was asked earlier in the book, you remember, chapter 22, the Pharisees and Sadducees had been silenced by his answers. And then a lawyer asked him a question to test him in verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law, all the law and the prophets. When Jesus identifies these as foundational and fixtures, he's pointing us to intent and to priority. And certainly these three virtues are aspects of those two main laws, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. What is justice? It's equitable dealings. It's being careful to apply the word in ways that are impartial, they're righteous, They're in accord with biblical prescriptions. They follow the examples of the scripture accordingly. They take into account the book of Proverbs. They seek to to dig out the meaning of Jesus' parables and instructions. They take seriously, justice would take seriously the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, an application of biblical ethics and righteousness, what is right and wrong behavior. Mercy, likewise, is careful to take into account the plight of our neighbor who may be in difficult and dire circumstances. We live in a culture that's falling apart at the seams, and so we have the equivalent of the poor and the needy among us by growing measure now. Do we take care to be about praying for and supplying the needs of the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the debtor? Do we express the kindness and the faithfulness to God and to fellow man that the law demands and the law instructs us to? And do we trust the saving work of Jesus Christ to equip us by His Holy Spirit to do exactly this? And lastly, faithfulness. Faithfulness in God and faithfulness to God. That is, faith in the Lord, that gift that we cannot stir up in and of ourselves, but again, we are dependent on the Lord to give us, and then we follow His will and and His instructions to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, and also faithfulness to God to follow Him in the instructions that He gives us. These are the main ideas. They were what the Pharisees missed and what we and they needed to be reminded of. And it's serious. Woe to those who miss the intent of the law. Woe to those who do not understand this category of understanding when it comes to lawfulness. What is the main point? What is the standard? What is the main idea? Secondly, this morning, we're seeking to understand lawfulness by three major categories. The second major category 
is internal. Inside versus outside. There's actually two anecdotes that Jesus brings forward to demonstrate this. The first is an object lesson of the cleanliness of a plate or dish. The second is the idea of a tomb that's whitewashed and full of bones. Let's read again in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The inside versus the outside dynamic. It's helpful to understand this also employing the imagery of root and fruit. What is the root of uh, our faith and consequently what is the fruit of our faith? What is foundational? What is to be built on that foundation? What is priority? What is secondary? The Pharisees had these reversed. They had, mistaken sancti- they had a mistaken idea of sanctification, for instance. What is sanctification? It is the act of making pure, clean, or setting apart for holy use. To the Pharisees, they lived their life and taught the Scriptures in such a way as to imply or expressly state that its sanctification is an outside-in process. Washing the body, doing works on the surface, presenting yourself righteously before your brethren, these are the things that made you holy on the inside. The cause was on the inside and the substance was on the outside. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says. You are in danger and worthy of judgment. You are hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. For greedy and self-indulgent reasons, many men are motivated. Many individuals are motivated to present themselves acceptable to the terms of the community in which they reside. It's not just church. People want to be seen as exemplary models in their peer group. They adopt the norms, the social norms of their society, their environment, and their peers, and then they present themselves accordingly. What is the heart motive for doing such a thing? You want to be seen well by others. You want to be accepted and loved. You want to be included. You want a sense of unity and purpose. But if these things are only there to glorify self, and to set us on good footing with those who will compliment us, then they stem from this source, hypocrisy, greed, and self-indulgence. They don't stem from the sovereign work of the Spirit changing our heart and then our motives so that we are interested in glorifying and proclaiming Christ. You may be familiar with the term in Latin, it's ordo salutis. It means the order of salvation. If you hear that in theology, it means to imply or convey that there is a particular order of salvation. There are first things that happen by way of cause. There are later things that happen by way of effect. Regeneration, the fundamental change of the human heart is primary. It precedes sanctification. First man's heart is changed. Secondly, his works become conformed to the image of the indwelling Christ. The Holy Spirit begins to change our heart and affections and behavior as a consequence of being changed on the inside, coming to faith, having a fundamental restructuring of our constitution. Once the old has gone and the new has come, then the good works begin. Good works might look the same on the outside, but when judged by the heart motive, they're either filthy rags or they're worshiped to God the Father. And what makes all the difference in the world is true biblical sanctification. The Pharisees, no doubt, were led astray by a false idea and application of the Old Covenant law. If you would study Exodus 30, 18 through 21 with a heart to present yourselves well before others, then you might take those instructions for ceremonial cleanliness as something to impress your neighbors who also valued the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible which laid out the law. You could be so careful to wash your hands before every meal. 
make a great show of it uh, to your guests before you sat down to partake in what they provided. But if you were doing so just to exalt yourself, just to seek as the Pharisees did, to put themselves in positions of prominence, they loved the place, for instance, of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others. He must be a rabbi. Did you see how carefully he washed his hands? He must be a religious expert. Did you see how careful he was to pace himself so as not to take one too many steps on the Sabbath day? These were the pitfalls of the Pharisee who failed to realize that the internal aspects of the law were most important. Sanctification is not outside in. There is no surface washing that will cleanse the dirtiness of the human heart. That is a work a miraculous cleansing that only the Holy Spirit can do from the inside out. These are basic gospel truths, brothers and sisters, but they are easy to miss. And although we may know them intellectually, it is easy to fall into patterns misguided by the motives of the heart to build up ourselves instead of to glorify Christ. What do we need to hear in these instances? We need to hear the corrective rebuke of the Holy Scriptures that would say, be careful, don't be a blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Secondly, under internal category of understanding of lawfulness, the Pharisees and scribes had mistaken sanctification, but they had also indulged misplaced fear or misplaced uh, reverence or respect. In verses 27 and 28, this is apparent in the second object lesson Jesus uses to describe inside versus outside related to lawfulness. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So again, the point is similar. The analogy is a little different. Some background to help us understand might include these historical notes. I'll include this in further reading on the website this week. But it was a common practice annually to take lime, for instance, you know, that white powdery substance, and go to the various grave sites, you know, within the surroundings, the municipalities of, you know, the Jewish uh, settlements and so on, and to actually color them white, to literally whitewash tombs, sepulchers, and grave sites. Well, why would people do this? Well, it, it was something that garnished that area and beautify them to some degree. That was part of the reason, it seems, as the historians tell us. But also, it served to mark apart or mark to set aside, to draw attention to this particular spot. Because if you were to tread upon it or come in contact with the dead, you would be at that point ceremonially unclean. Laws along this line we see in the book of Leviticus as well. Chapter 21 comes to mind because we studied it recently. The priests, for instance, it was against the God's law for them to touch their dead relatives, to be in contact with even a dead animal before they would go in to worship because it represented uncleanness. So to mark spots, say danger, you know, stay away from here, those, the whitewashing of tombs would draw your attention so that you could stay pure, lawful, and ceremonially ceremonially clean, sidestepping these areas of impurity. Well, this is the imagery that Jesus is drawing upon when he says, Woe to you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. And you can see, if you are the tomb, there is no way to be ceremonially clean. If you're walking around full of dead man's bones, if you are the sepulcher, you are the ossuary, you can put all the lime on you that you want, but really, what are you telling your friends and neighbors? Steer clear of me. I'm full of dead man's bones. That's the imagery that Jesus was using. Again, to highlight the importance of the inside. If we walk around with the death and decay of sin, we ourselves are not in good standing with the Lord, and we are unclean and must be separated from His presence. I'll recall to your attention, two weeks ago we were in Hebrews 7. What does verse 26 say? Jesus Christ had to be perfect 
innocent, unstained, and what? Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Otherwise, he would not have been a sufficient mediator. There is a separation from sin, from uncleanness that was pictured in the law and is substantial to holiness. There is no sin that survives in the presence of God. If you so much touched the place of God's temporal residing and presence with His people, like the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, what would happen? You'd be struck dead in a moment. Why? Because separation was absolutely necessary. We are full of dead man's bones in our sin. There is no way we can be, uh, there's no way God can abide us in His presence until a fundamental change takes place. And that fundamental change has nothing to do with the exterior. It has nothing substantially to do with the presentation of self on the surface. It has everything to do with the inside, with the heart, with the internal. Now the Pharisees lived in such a way as to impress men. They were concerned by those who could see on the outside. And that was their priority. That was their primary concern and duty was that those who could see the surface would judge them well. But the true misplaced fear or the true fear that we ought to have is the fear of the Lord. Respect and reverence for the one who sees past the surface into the heart, who knows the thoughts and intentions of our very soul, who, can, who catalogs with perfection and omniscience everything done in secret. When we live in light of the fear of God who sees beyond the surface to the heart, we have a whole new standard indeed, do we not? And only then can we confess the sin of walking around like well-washed and well-presented ossuaries where man might think that we are beautiful on the surface, but inside there's a cancerous, decaying mass of spiritual depravity that must be addressed or we will be separated from God's presence. Finally, under internal issues, there's this man versus God dilemma that we see shape, taking shape in the text. I mentioned to you that the intent of the law was described in three categories, summarized in three categories in verse 24. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, or verse 23, are what Jesus refers to to help us identify the intent of the law. When we walk around as a Pharisee, what do we substitute justice, mercy, and faithfulness for? These are the intent of the law. Well, we substitute them for lawlessness. Lawlessness is characterized by greed, self-indulgence, and hypocrisy. Verse 25 tells us, But inside, the Pharisee, though he washes the surface of the cup and plate, as it were, is full of greed and self-indulgence. In this blind state, what are we oblivious to? The fact that our heart is wicked and rotting and unjust before the Lord and needs to be addressed fundamentally. We are the whitewashed tomb and Jesus goes on to describe in verse 28, so also outwardly appear righteous, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So God values, or when we follow the intent of the law, when we see that it, the law itself is an instruction, it's a schoolmaster to show us the inside and to ask that God might fundamentally change us that Jesus Christ would fulfill the law for us, be our substitute sacrifice, and that by His, the power of His indwelling Spirit, we might begin to walk in justice, mercy, and faithfulness. If we seek salvation or justification any other way, all we will do is cultivate the rot of greed, self-indulgence, and hypocrisy. This leads me to my final point this morning, understanding lawfulness by a third category, and that's the category of imminent. Imminent means, again, within the limits of our experience and knowledge. Lawfulness, or God's word and His standards of righteousness, it wasn't a relic of the past. And this is so important for us today. Perhaps of all uh, three of these points, this one carries the most pressing and weighty applications for us, at least with respect to the cultural deception that we see all around us. Listen again, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding uh, the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves 
that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, filling up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Under this idea of the standards of God and His Word being imminent, the Pharisees were throwing up a monument smokescreen, if you will. They were honoring something, but it wasn't the essence, the main point, the intent. They were instead exalting monuments, and they were, in, they were impressing themselves and others and busy about the symbols. They said, or Jesus says, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. So there's a superficial homage that they are paying to those who have gone before. They're interested in the form, but not the essence. They're out there, you know, adjusting all of these uh, things and taking care of the monuments and the statuary and whatever else, these symbols outwardly of those who went before. But ultimately, at the bottom, at the basis, they were rejecting what those who were buried in those tombs actually stood for. I've heard it said in a biting rebuke and critical analysis of Catholicism that there is no apostolic succession if you don't teach what the apostles taught. And this, brothers and sisters, is a classic example of the error. The Church of Rome claims the apostolic succession Secession. In other words, Peter uh, transferred his mantle of authority onto someone else and somebody else, and now Pope Francis actually holds this mantle of authority. It's apostolic succession, uh, don't you know? What is an homage paid to a supposed authority figure of a church if you reject what they taught? And if you go through the Catholic Catechism, you will find that you will run out of pages, you know, in your notebook of errors that have now been codified into practice within that expression of spirituality. And what has happened? The saints have been venerated. What they taught is minimized. You know, the edifices are well taken care of and beautiful on the surface, but they ring with the hollow bones of losing God's word. There is no succession. There is no future for the church if we do not stand on what Christ spoke, what the apostles stood on, what those who went before taught. The Pharisees were guilty of this kind of hypocrisy. They were garnishing the tombs, but they hated the message that the prophets who were martyred before spoke. In fact, if those prophets were alive, they would conspire to kill them. How do we know? Because at the very moment Jesus was speaking these words, they were conspiring to kill him. And who was he? He was the one of whom the prophets spoke. Later in the passage, Jesus says that there will be more prophets sent. And what will they do? They will shun them. They will reject them. They will kill them. They will persecute them. And so this is the message. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do we throw up a kind of a monument smokescreen? Do we look for justification by association with things that went before? by token acts of sentimentality and by tradition. I mean, these days, as far as worldview is concerned, the Constitution is a really popular word. People get really irate if you burn the flag. People want to see a Merry Christmas remain, you know, on storefronts. They'll even say their name is Merry Christmas at Starbucks so it gets written on their cup, you know, as a kind of a protest vote to keep Christ in the season. We get irate when nativity scenes are removed from the public square, and in some cases, and to some measure, rightly so, I imagine. Someone told me this week, remember what's in the arm of the Statue of Liberty. I said, what's that? The Ten Commandments. Well, I did a little Wikipedia search this morning. There's nothing of the sort. It just says the 4th of July, 1776, or something like that, the date of the Declaration of Independence, whatever that was. And so here we are, honoring, paying homage to all these symbols, all these surface things. But if we don't honor and revere the source of law, the only strong foundation upon which a society, a church, a country is built, if we don't honor him, if we don't learn the lessons of, lawless, of lawfulness and lawlessness, uh, conversely, from the pages of Scripture, what are we doing? We are just busy with the window dressing of a dying culture, and we are throwing up a smokescreen, 
And in all of our braggadocio and hypocritical self-importance and self-justification, we're not repenting, we're just putting our hope in a symbol, not the substance which is Christ. If we want to change, if we want to see repentance, if we truly want to stand for lawfulness, we will call out the condition of the heart and soul of the individual that resides within the dying throes of this post-Christian era. And we will call for people to return to Him. And only then will we find a sufficient source of reform, of reconstruction, of repentance, and of hope that the future we might have good works to show for the salvation that only Christ can work in the heart of the individual. Now, if we fail to do that, our attempts and our leaning and all these, uh, uh, all these other things will only be a testimony against us. The very things that the Pharisees were leaning on for justification were actually going to be a witness to their condemnation. And under imminent, this is the murderer's defense. In verse 30, again in our text, the Pharisees were saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would, have taken, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You know, one possible application or illustration of this text came to my mind recently in the form of stories from World War II. Isn't it just such a popular Hollywood genre to paint the picture of lionizing the heroic efforts of the Allied forces, you know, against all Axis evil odds? And the great demons of all of history are the Nazis represented by Hitler the only person truly deserving of hell sometimes, it seems, in the consciousness of this secular humanistic age we live in, and then all the while painted in glowing heroic terms in these movies and popular media portrayals is the allies that came to the rescue and delivered these people from the oppression and set the world aright again. And if we're not careful, if we eat these things up uncritically, we may be doing exactly what the Pharisees did, rolling our sins onto a false scapegoat, Hitler and the Nazis, or whatever the new latest demon is, and, then, and, say, and sending that goat, as it were, off into the wilderness to be condemned, and meanwhile feeling self-righteous. You don't think America is guilty of crimes against the innocent? You don't think, America, that you have blood dripping from your hands? A man told me, a Christian man told me, this is absolutely true. He was t- had a conversation this last week with a relative, And the relative said, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. And And this individual is a known quantity politically. They will fight to keep the women's right to choose an abortion on demand as a fixture in our legal code. So this voter was saying, I'm going to vote for so-and-so. And my Christian friend said, I want you to look at your hands. And while that individual was looking at the hands, said, now I want you to see them covered with blood of innocence, of the innocence. I want you to see that blood dripping down your forearms. I want you to see it drenching you as you stand. That's a graphic picture. Is it false? That's a graphic picture. Is it untrue? I submit to you that the genocide that we tolerate in this land where the innocents are slaughtered by the tens of millions are we, do we have any right as a society to compare ourselves with others that went before and say, oh, those wicked tyrants killing this segment of people over here, these innocent people over there? No, brothers and sisters, we are guilty of the same. And if we stand before the bar of glory one day and seek entrance into those pearly gates by saying, I'm not as bad as Hitler, do you think that you will gain entrance No more than the Pharisee who hears seven times from the mouth of Christ, woe, 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 and then finally, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced from hell? That is the question. How are you to escape? How am I? How are we to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, at this passage, that's the final 
close of our text this morning, the point we've chosen to stop. But I'm not going to stop there. In close of this message, I want to turn you back to chapter 3 of this same book. That question, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? It hangs out there in this moment, unanswered rhetorically. And the implication is, in the hearers, in the ears of the hearers, that under these circumstances, you double down on your error. You will not escape the judgment that is right around the corner. And this is the proclamation. But let me submit to you the answer to that question, how will you escape the flames of hell? It has been answered. It came before. And because the Pharisees were blind to the proclamation, were blind to the words and deaf to the proclamation, therefore now they were receiving their just dues in judgment from the word of Christ. But notice, but notice as we turn back to the ministry of John the Baptist, the fruit or the uh, beautiful answer to that question that they missed. It says in verse six, and they were there. I'm going to go to five. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The warning of judgment preceded Jesus' own words, but also the message of repentance. If the Pharisees had repented, if they had then consequently borne fruit in keeping with repentance, if they would have thrown aside their filthy rags of self-righteousness, if they would have placed faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah, now flesh and blood before them, they would not have heard the woes. But instead, today you will be with me in paradise. The message is repeated in the next chapter, 417. In the words of Jesus himself, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see the measure in Matthew 23 of the fathers, that is, those who in the rebellion and obstinance stopped their ears to the prophetic word that went before. And Jesus declares, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, the judgment that is deserving of all who have denied the way of salvation will fall upon your own heads. We ask ourselves this morning, conversely, what is the measure of the gospel? And the measure of the gospel is the powerful purchasing price, inestimable of Jesus Christ's own blood. And therein lies our hope, the hope for a Pharisee, the hope for Nicodemus when he came to Jesus by night, the hope for Saul, the one-time Pharisee, who had a miraculous conversion experience and turned from killing and persecuting and chasing down and stamping out the work of Christ to being its tireless and most zealous missionary at the time of the apostolic age. Again, this rhetorical question at this point in the context of judgment is ominous as it hits our ears, but it has been answered. How do we escape the flames of hell? During the ministry of John the Baptist, the Elijah who went before, during the ministry of Christ who followed, and in the summary of Luke 24, where we are called to preach repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins, this is how the eyes of the lost, of the Pharisee, are opened when they admit that they themselves are a sinner and Jesus Christ alone can save. Let us pray that any blindness of our own hearts will be washed away in the light of of God's revelation this morning, that he might give us the fruit of repentance. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, though your word brings a sharp rebuke to us, that it is exactly what our soul prone to wander needs. 
I pray that you would bring unto us, if there be any room in each of our hearts, repentance of any leaning on our own works, our own understanding, instead of Christ. I pray, Lord, also in this day and age where any number of justification means are offered, Lord, accept the most unpopular, which is faith in Christ alone, that you would give us boldness to proclaim even among a land of Pharisees that there is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. May we shine as lights bearing the words that you bore, Lord, echoing them to those that we come in contact with and also living them. I pray, Lord, by the power of the Spirit's work within us as evidence of our regeneration that we would learn the lessons of lawfulness, repenting of missing the point, repenting of misleading standards, repenting of false schemes of sanctification, misplaced fear, smoke screens, and defenses that are not based in Christ alone and that we might embrace the intent, the internal aspects, and the truth, Lord, that is imminent of your holy word. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.